This episode was recorded on the country of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to extend our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And we'd like to extend those respects to the traditional custodians on the lands wherever you may listen to this podcast. And I, it just maybe that anecdote kind of maybe reminded me, which every farmer knows, is that there's no absolutes in farming. And I think that's the hardest part of selling stuff to people at scale is the organic label was extremely simple for consumers to understand. No pesticides, no this, no that, period. And people are like, oh, yeah, I don't want that in my food. I'll buy it, right? But it oversimplifies the problem. G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be joining you today. It is the week that we should have been celebrating Evoke Ag in person here in Sydney, but nevertheless, we've got something nearly just as good. We've teamed up with the team at Evoke Ag to get access to some of their awesome people in their network. We'll be hearing their stories of innovation, where they came from, what keeps them involved and why they're so passionate about shaping the future of food. Today's guest is Mike Lee. Now, I remember back in Evoke Ag 2020 in Melbourne, Mike walked onto the stage. I feel like everyone at the event just started talking about him in the days that followed. He captured the mind, eyes and ears of everyone in the auditorium. Now, his job is pretty cool, I reckon. He's a futurist, which means that he works with some of the largest organisations globally to help them see what our food system may look like in the next 5 to 25 years. Today, Mike and I chat a little bit about his journey from his childhood and upbringing in Detroit to starting his own dining experiences to then starting his own business as the future market and then co-founding Alpha Foods. I love Mike's realness in his approach, as you'll hear, He works with businesses to create products that are delicious. He's so level-headed in terms of what drives the consumers, and I found that part incredibly fascinating. He looks to work with companies that are interested in balancing what's good for people, for the planet, and doing it in a way that's profitable. I hope you guys enjoy the chat. Mike, you're coming to us all the way from Detroit, and I'd love to welcome you to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Thank you for having me. So good to be here. Right, it's um, it seems literally a worlds away over there. So, how are you? How's everything going over in the US? Everything's pretty good. Um, things are starting to open up a little bit, you know, and I think um, the weather is getting a little bit warmer here. We're entering our springtime, so uh, you know, the thaw is, has begun, especially here in the north. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to start off, and I guess like I've given a very quick overview of. Uh, who you are. But if you bump into someone at a coffee shop or down at a bar, how do you explain to them what it is that you do? Yeah. I mean, at at a high level, we help food companies think about the future in a more holistic and sustainable way. You know, Um, we primarily focus on FMCG companies as our client base, but um, certainly we are much more kind of attuned to, I think, <clears throat> the needs and experiences of the whole agricultural supply chain when we're talking to FMCG. And our goal is to not just kind of work with these companies to come up with sort of the incremental slight innovation, you know, for next year. But we try to really work with these companies and try to help them understand how they can create products and services that actually shift systems and not just kind of continue the same old, same old all the time. So, um, Really, at the end of the day, it's it's all about 
working with companies who have the scale and influence to meaningfully shift the food system towards something that, like you said, is better for people, planet, and and for profit. Um, not just for those companies, but for the farmers, the everyone else, you know, along that supply chain. Um, so yeah, that's sort of in a nutshell what we do. Um, and that shows up in you know a lot of different ways, uh, but at the end of the day, th- those are the kind of questions that we deal with uh, and help our clients with. I love it. And when I was starting off with Humans Vag, I kind of set up this ethos, and it sounded a bit too lofty, I guess. But if I think of kind of agriculture and our food and fiber system, I think like flowing kind of across the world, there's a real chance to make happier, healthier, more prosperous people and communities through through agriculture. So I'm fascinated for this chat today. Where where did the interest come from in food for you? Well, um, I grew up in Detroit and I third generation kind of food family. You know, my grandparents moved from Hong Kong to Detroit in the 1940s and they started up, um, you know, some very successful Chinese restaurants here in that time. And, you know, at that time in, in Detroit, you know, and, and specifically it was kind of uh, a boom town, you know, it was Motown, it was the Motor City, it was, it was all these things. And they were a part of sort of this burgeoning Chinatown here, right? Uh, there used to be a really vibrant Chinatown here. And so, you know, one story that really sticks out from my grandfather when he was alive that he told me that really kind of colored how I look at things in my current day work across my whole career was when he was making the decision to come to the United States from Hong Kong and he knew he wanted to set up a business. He had a lot of different friends who were Chinese who were in the traditional Chinatown areas like San Francisco, um, New York city, things like that. And he ultimately decided to not go to any of those to go to Detroit, which despite it kind of having a, a nice boom in that area era was not really a fertile kind of Chinese community. And typically immigrants coming to a new company, they try to look for, you know, the community that they're familiar with. And he basically thought to himself, you know, why do I want to be just another person in the crowd in those already established crowded Chinatowns? I want to be the one that's going to introduce and define what Chinatown is and Chinese food is to this audience here. I don't think he thought of it this way. But it was just an implicit lesson that I've always held that he he just simply decided to go where no one else was going. And he did extremely well uh, because of it. And, and I don't think, you know, without that, he wouldn't have set up my parents for success and my parents couldn't set me up for success. So I really owe so much to that decision of him deciding to go where sort of the undiscovered kind of opportunity was. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I grew up in this restaurant family, so food's always been a part of my life. Um, but I didn't always work in it. You know, I've, I studied business. I studied design. I, uh, worked in finance and technology. Um, and from, you know, right out of university, I I really, one of my, my, my job was always kind of helping large companies think like startups. So I was always kind of working in a big company but not doing the kind of normal business that kind of keeps the, the the main business running. It's more like a small little team that gets to kind of experiment and research and prototype and build and try to think about, okay, what are the things that are five years out that are going to help this company continue to grow into the future? So um, yeah, so I did that for a lot of my early career. And then 
I started doing underground dining clubs in New York, uh, creating these experiential dinners and things like that as, as a side hustle on top of my day job. So I was doing product development, innovation, breakthrough stuff during the day. And then I would put an apron on and, you know, hang out with my friends and put on these kind of crazy dinners with, with people. And that went on for a number of years. And then Chobani called one day and said, you know, we saw some of the dinners you were doing. We're building a design team. We'd love to kind of, you know, have you on board. And that sort of paired together this classical kind of training of like corporate innovation combined with kind of like this renegade dinner food, kind of playing with your food stuff. Um, and, and so that kind of really synced up nicely. Uh, and then ever since then, you know, um, I, I've been really kind of carving out a space of how to get these companies to think differently. Um, and, and, and yeah, and, and so that, that kind of colored how I got into food. And the more and more I dug into it, I really started to realize that kind of finding, finding ways to create products and services that delight consumers, but also can promote real systems change for sustainability and health is sort of the sweet spot that I'm trying to hit. Um, so all of that kind of background and experience kind of has led up to this chapter um, in, in the career where, where that's really a big focus of, of what uh, me and my firm are, are trying to do with food. I'm interested in the, the piece around going and sitting in large corporations in this instance, um, food, food businesses and, and being able to actually set up a business. Was it a real learning curve for both yourself and them in terms of actually, well, this is a different way of thinking. It's, we do have kind of the money behind us, but actually we need to keep it separate so it can actually thrive and, and take that kind of organic route that it would take. Yeah, you definitely need to kind of create a sandbox, so to speak, you know, whether formally or informally. Um, and, and you got to have kind of leadership recognize that they're going to do 90% of their business in the stuff that they know works and the stuff, maybe it's not sustainable, maybe it's not healthy even, but they've got shareholders and everyone expects a profit, right? So it's hard to, you know, I, I don't know any CEO anywhere that has the political capital to say, we're going to stop all of the things we're doing because we know they're destroying the planet and they're not healthy for humans. And we're going to start doing this stuff. Right. And I think that's kind of a structural problem because I, I think that's damn near impossible to do at a large company, even though there might be people at the top who know that this is not the best thing for the planet or people uh, at the end of the day, you know, humans are, you know, somewhat emotional and illogical and it's a messier conversation than that. Right. Uh, I don't blame them per se. I kind of, it, it's more a problem of the structure of how these companies are built and how people are incentivized. So that's the main part of the business. And that kind of has to keep running in most instances for the time being, but on the side, we always try to fight for, okay, how do you take X percent of your revenue and put it towards these things that could mean usher you into the next generation? Um, and have the, and, and hope, hopefully you have the patience to, um, suck at it for a while and lose a bunch of money <laughs> for a little bit, <laughs> but, but learn from it, you know, and but be okay from with that. Right. So, yeah. Um, and I think the other thing I learned with is that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fashionable to kind of, you know, beat up on, on big food. Right. And certainly they're, they're not purely innocent of, of so many things. 
But I think the thing I really realized before, because we, we started trying to talk to the people that were working in the main businesses at these companies first, and it just wasn't working. They weren't interested. And I was like, okay, well, we're trying to shove a square peg in a round hole. And it actually took us a while to realize and find that within these huge multinational companies, they usually have a decent amount of people who are kind of insurgents on the inside who think like activists and want to kind of change the system from inside. And for us, the trick has always been, if you're going to name a, a big global food company, I always try to want to find the people that are working on that stuff because anybody else is not really going to be a good fit for what we do. Did, did you think like during this time, like was that kind of your motivation around trying to yeah take these huge, big profit generating businesses and actually do good by the world or were you at this stage in your career where you were like actually i just want to work on awesome emerging food trends uh it was a little bit of all of that you know i I think there's a lot of different ways you can approach kind of food systems change right um i could we could have started you know a grassroots organization we could have worked at another grassroots organization or a nonprofit or stuff like that Um, And those are all valid and important ways to do it. Um, We could have become farmers, you know, we could have helped farmers more directly. There's, there's, there's a need for all of that. I think with just the particular relationships we had built up over the years and the kind of experience we had, we felt like we were uniquely kind of more suited to kind of help these big companies that dictated so much of the demand for consumers and from farmers. Mm -hmm. I think Typically, and this is not always the case, maybe it, maybe, I don't know, maybe nearly is always the case from, you know, all the farmers we've talked to in, in the U S and across the world, it's really like, it's really all about what are the incentives for that farmer? And the thing is with some of these big FMCG companies, they've set up an incentive system that doesn't always kind of encourage farmers to plant kind of the most holistic things, you know? This is how we've kind of, big food has been built off of monocultures and large industrial farms, right? And while, you know, it's been amazingly effective at just providing raw calories for the world, you know, it, it's it's questionable how long you can sustain that, um, a system that's kind of propped up with, um, you know, petrochemical inputs and, and heavy, you know, um, soil tillage and, and stuff like that, right? But, I don't like, I don't, I want to like come off as like blaming farmers for that. It's just the farmers are fulfilling a need that these big companies have set. Um, Nobody is demanding boatloads of, you know, uh, fully, you know, grass fed, regenerative, whatever, you know, they're, they're demanding. I want, I want four shipping containers of, of commodity wheat every day from you, you know? So yeah, that, that's kind of why, where we chose that we could add the most value to, to kind of shift systems. We felt like some of these big companies, they were literally the intersection of supply and demand. Because on the other side, they have enormous influence over uh, farmers and, and the suppliers, but they also have enormous influence over consumers. And yeah. kind of how, how savvy they are at kind of marketing these things. And um, so, so I, I think for us, that was a really, really great challenge. Because, you know, my partner is very... Um, supply side minded, you know, Danielle Gould, she also founded Food Tech Connect. 
Um, and she's always been very deeply embedded in kind of farming and grower communities. Um, and, you know, I've always been uh, uh, really in, leaning towards kind of consumer stuff and, and advertising and marketing and stuff like that. So I think that's where we kind of come together to kind of really understand both sides of the demand and supply. It's really cool and, and interesting. And, and I think as you, as you're talking about that and the influence of big food, and it is, you producers are producing for a market um what what's demanding it but i i think was it oh years escaped me maybe two years ago now and they've banned the use of any any wheat or, or grain products in their in their cereals that have been desiccated with glyphosate within x number of days before harvest in australia that's fine because it's not a practice here but there's are they reacting to the consumer sentiment and i guess what i want to lean into here is actually starting to talk about some of these food trends is it yeah is that is it leaning on the side of fact and health and and we're just continually learning about the science behind it or have they gone more towards say the the, the consumer end and and the consumer conscience so specifically with stuff like that, you know, kind of leaning towards organics. And I know you guys don't have that, that issue because it's not a thing and, you know, getting rid of glyphosate. I, I think, yeah, that that's been a big part of kind of consumer outcry saying, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know how the movement got started or whenever it got started, but somehow uh, everyone decided that they, they didn't want glyphosate in their food anymore. And not everyone, not everyone, but, but, you know, a very strong contingent. Um, and that kind of propped up the kind of a cottage industry of kind of organics and that's, that's been growing. Right. Although, and, and certainly I think consumer trends should lead the way, but it's complicated because I, I also think that suppliers, not manufacturers, like growers need to kind of take a more active voice into educating the public about what's going on at the farm. Because, you know, it's interesting. I was in Washington state up here in the United States and there's a big salmon population there, right? So that's one of the big industries up there, right? There's also a lot of wheat being grown up there. And one of the wheat farmers was telling me like, okay, if I, if I spray copper sulfate on my, my plants, I can remove fungus in a really um, good way. And I don't have to use, uh, you know, artificial uh, herbicides and fungicides uh, and I can stay organic and I can keep organic on my label for my wheat or whatever. And I just need to use copper sulfate on my plants. And that is a way for me to get rid of fungus, but stay organic. That's a good thing, right? But then you talk to like the salmon fishery that's downstream from where they are. And they say, no, it's copper sulfate that leaches from your groundwater into the water system here completely messes up the salmon's uh, kind of compass to find the upstream place they're supposed to go every year to go upstream and lay eggs and mate, right? So it's a really interesting conundrum because on the one hand, you've got a farmer that's like, oh, I'm doing great. I'm using a thing that keeps me organic and consumers love it. But then the salmon fisher down the road is like, no, this stuff is horrible. So it's like, what do you do? You know? And I, it just, maybe that anecdote kind of maybe reminded me, which every farmer knows is that there's no absolutes in farming. And I think that's the hardest part of selling stuff to people at scale is the organic label was extremely simple for consumers to understand. No pesticides, no this, no that period. And people are like, oh, yeah, I don't want that in my food. I'll buy it, right? Mm -hmm. But it oversimplifies the problem. 
you know, drastically. Um, and so, but, but you can't, but then on the other hand, you can't pitch to every consumer that whole story I just told you about the salmon because no one listens to that. You know, that's just too much information for a consumer at the supermarket. Um, and so that tension, I think, is super interesting is how do you kind of em empower farmers because they, they're the ones that know best what's good for their region or their land, but they're not really empowered to kind of communicate that directly to consumers. Exactly. And, and I think what's, what's so interesting, I was writing down a few things. It's kind of like, Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. There is no silver bullet. Silver bullet. It is kind of this food dilemma, and it's that everything, no matter what decision you're making, and I think this is where why I'm so interested in, in and around food too is because it's such a vital part of everyone's lives that it's, there's always a trade-off, and it's how do you understand your decision and and coming back to that it's exactly that it's the people on the ground that are who are living and breathing it who can say yeah. this is my story this is how we do it it's not necessarily saying this is right for you but here's the information go and make your decision yeah. Well, and that's the tension, right? Because I think the food industry, whether it's a restaurant or a big, you know, FMCG company sort of operates under the customer is always right kind of, uh, you know, the theory is yeah. that, okay, you know, big companies spend millions of dollars every year doing consumer insight studies, trying to understand what people want next. That's like mm -hmm. the holy grail, right? And then they make the food system bend to those wills. I have an issue with that because I think that's the classical way of doing it. And, and maybe that works in, you know, other industries, but I think in food, I, I think like the, 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 the farmers and growers and the people who represent the land need to express the needs of the land a little bit more to counterbalance the needs of consumers. Because mm -hmm. one day a bunch of consumers probably said, you know, I'm trying to drink more water, but it's hard to have water with me everywhere. So some companies said, oh, what if we put water in a plastic bottle? It's just tap water. Let's put it in a plastic bottle and put it in every store, every place you can imagine. So you're never going to be too far from a bottle of water and you can drink it and you just dispose of it. How great is that? Right. So they really solved the human problem that people were expressing of, OK, I have a problem. I need water everywhere. And they did that really, really well. But that's the problem is that they did that really, really well. They didn't understand the needs of the planet to say, oh my Lord, that's a lot of plastic, you know? So I don't believe that the customer is always right. And just because the customer wants something doesn't mean they should have it. Um, it's a quasi kind of socialist point of view, but I don't think it is. I But, but I, don't, I don't think we should like, you know, I don't, I also don't think we should kind of preach to people and tell them what they should and shouldn't do. 
I think you actually have to go and make the more sustainable solution inherently more sexy than the unsustainable selection. I think companies need to earn it. That's the difference, right? Because I think kind of more of a big government person might say, yeah, plastic is bad. Let's just ban the plastic, mm. right? And then people are like, no, you can't control what I do, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I hate you. I'm going to move here. I'm going to riot, blah, blah, blah. I want my plastic, you know? I think that's hard. I think what would work better is, let's say in a fictitious world, somebody came up with a container that worked just as well as a plastic bottle, but like dissolved immediately and, you know, put nutrients in the soil and it kept their water tasting better. I'm not saying that exists, but I'm saying that's the thing that you should be looking for because whether you're Democrat, Republican, conservative, or liberal, you like the environment or not, you're just going to buy that better water bottle. Mm. and help the planet. So I think that's kind of like the, the thing that we're trying to look to do is don't, don't try to like preach to people and, and shame them into doing the right thing. Give them something that is like, make the sustainable choice, the more enjoyable choice. I love that. And, and I think when we talked uh, recently, I, I do want to chat to you and get your perspective on this around food because it is this piece and I'm going to be so <laughs> hypocritical here because I'm going to say it's about fact versus emotion and I'm going to start this question off by saying it feels which just seems so wrong Mike but anyway it feels like people are so emotive when it comes uh, to their food so what is it about food that ties in emotion and logic but then yeah. no matter all the logic that exists that emotion can just completely wipe it out so that is one of the central theses that Alpha Food Labs runs on. And it is infused into almost all of the work we do is this, because we work so much with sustainability marketing. And I would, I would argue that most food sustainability marketers are operating purely, not purely, but majority on a logical level. You know, mm -hmm. we only have 60 harvests left of topsoil. You know, the, the temperature is going to raise by 0.5 Celsius, you know, in the next five years, um, carbon percentages, et cetera, et cetera. Those are valid, but when it comes to food, people don't always consider those things when they're making food decisions as much as they like to think so. Um, food is inherently emotional. Um, we are not stock traders. We're not selling uh, you know, big ingots of iron to a marketplace that's purely logical and is just going to, I need the best price, best performance, right? Mm -hmm. Food is super emotional. Um, and that's just hardwired into us as humans and us in the culture. So we've got this tension that you have to, you have to act logically and illogically when you're keen into this call to action for like anyone who's trying to do something more sustainable, your goal is not to make it your goal is not to communicate to people how sustainable you are. Your goal is to communicate how much more enjoyable it is to that person versus the other thing. And by the way, it's also sustainable, you know? Um, and, and I think that that's huge. Uh, I always, my running joke is to say that like ice cream is completely illogical. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> There's no point in having it logically, right? It's not that good for you. Uh, you know, it just, it's just a cheap thrill, cheap calories, but like nobody ever says that because ice cream is just purely emotional. It's just, it's a great thing and it exists in our culture. So you can't get people to just all of a sudden drop their ice cream and eat salads every day. I know a lot of people think that way that they want that to happen. That's not going to happen. 
in my opinion. Um, you have to, yeah. So, so much of food, and this is the, the part which really fascinates me, is it's the psychology behind it. And I think coming from where my career began, which was actually on the farm side, but it, what's always interested me is this consumer piece and how we, how we market it as such. Can you think of a, a really good campaign or movement around food that has really tapped into that psychological piece? Yeah, I mean, I think the classic one is a really obvious one. It's actually, it's the, it's the two leading kind of plant-based burger brands Impossible and Beyond, right? And I think the reason, I think it's such an interesting case study because I think the reason why they have gotten so much attention is that they've kind of built this idea that with our product, you can save the planet in a delicious way with almost no shift in your behavior or experience with regard to how you eat burgers. Mm-hmm. The veggie burger has been around for a long time. Why aren't, weren't people going crazy over that the way they are beyond meat, right? Is because through all of this scientific wizardry, they, they kind of figure out how to get to like, you know, 85% of the taste experience of a real hamburger, but it's plants. Um, and, and then they, they kind of build this, you know, generalized story that says like, if you eat plants, it's better for the plant than cows. And guess what? Our plants taste just like a cow, you know? So I think that's so interesting because the reason why that succeeded so well is because they, they, they went after the emotional part of the eater. Veggie burgers never did that. Veggie burgers were kind of like, eh, it's this cake of like beans and lentils and things like that and nothing against beans and lentils, but it's not a burger, you know, it's not a burger. And so I, I think like companies like that hit the nail on the head and they've done it to great effect because it's a highly processed product. It's maybe a little too reductive to, to think that all of their, everything in the agriculture they're doing is perfectly sustainable. But the, but the thing for better or for worse is not a lot of people are asking those questions. Mm. Can <laughs> they I just ask? kind of forgot about it. They're just like, Oh, cool. Burger save the planet. Tastes good. Okay. Whatever. I don't want to ask any more questions. Just give it to me. Yeah. Take my money. Can I ask? And because it's so interesting in Australia, I'm not sure if you're across it. So there's this whole food labeling piece that's underway at the moment. And it's these plant-based burgers, they're calling them plant-based meats. The meat industry is saying, well, you can't do that. It's confusing the consumer, et cetera. How, how has the, the U S market, the, the animal protein market reacted and how are they combating or addressing this, the rise of plant-based proteins? We've had a similar thing. I think the, the, the American Cattlemen's Association, which is the, the big one, um, they put out a lot of lawsuits against these kinds of things. Very American. Very American. <laughs> this is our, this is our way. This is the way. Defamation. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't know how I feel about it because, well, no, I do. I, I'm, I'm kind of torn behind it because on the one hand, on the one hand, I do sort of think it, it'd be better served <clears throat> if it had a different name and didn't mm-hmm. pull itself off as meat. Cause it's not meat. It's a meat like experience. That's fair. Um, but I also think that if that is the Cattlemen's Association answer to trying to stop that force of plant-based meats, that's not a very good strategy. You can't litigate that company away. And honestly, if people <coughs> love Beyond Meat and, and things like that, if they change it to Beyond whatever, people are still going to like it. Mm. You know, so I, I think that, I think, you know, cattle producers have had it relatively easy 
because there wasn't really anyone else going after what they're selling. Yeah. Well, it's just the other meats, you know, um, they compete with other cattle producers. They compete with people who do chicken and whatever, but they never had like a plant-based thing that was making a serious run at their, their market share. So in the long run, I think it'll hopefully force them to innovate more so that they have a better answer to beyond meat than just lawsuits. Yeah. Um, because one day I think impossible and beyond will get to the point where their plant-based burger is like 99.9% the taste experience of a real beef burger. And maybe it'll be a price parity. <clears throat> you can't sue that company out of existence. You have to outcompete them, which is also very American. <laughs> Just to say, you know, so, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I think like, and I think what'll, what'll happen is that if you're a beef producer and you're in the bottom 20% of quality, mm-hmm. I think you're going to have, you're going to, you're going to go out of business because you're going to have extremely sophisticated plant-based alternatives for people. And then you're going to also one day also have extremely sophisticated lab grown meat options too. So this market that was this huge pie that you had access to, and you didn't have to work very hard to kind of access it now got smaller because you have to share that pie with the plant-based people and the cell ag people. So anyone who's not in the traditional cow game and at the top of that game, it's going to be really hard for them to compete because there's just going to be less demand for everything. Have we, have, have you guys seen any, poaching like it maybe yeah, i'm just taking this from a way too simplistic view but any poaching of say the yeah the red meat industries and cattlemen's associations have they gone and tried to take chief marketing officers from some of these highly innovative really successful in engaging a consumer in the story of what it is have you seen any movement like that not that i've seen i'm sure it's happening i think that it needs to happen more i mean yeah if i was a big beef producer yeah, I'd be trying to hire the ad agency and the CMO away from Impossible Burger, you know, and beyond. Yeah, I, I, I think that's that's what I would be doing, you know. It's uh, it's too simple. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's well, I, I mean, I think, of the, but I think that this along all along the supply chain. I always wondered why, why do the the most unhealthy, unsustainable food have the best marketing? Well, they need it because there's not really anything else there. But I think what we're realizing is I think maybe the more healthy, sustainable food marketers also need those marketing campaigns. If mm. you think about all the marketing Coca-Cola's put out over the last 40, 50 years or whatever, and there's just how many awards they've won and how many like cultural, they've penetrated the culture globally, you know? Yeah. Um, whoever has, you know, worked on making that happen, why can't they work for a grass-fed farmer, a regenerative farmer? Why can't they figure out how to explain to people what cover crops are and, and in a simple way that, that, that makes it easy for them to do? That, that I think, is the ultimate challenge. Is, is, um, I, I think if you, if you have the most sustainable, well-run farm, I think that's only half the battle. You need that kind of person who created the Coke campaign to say, okay, here's how we sell it. Yeah, it's a fascinating area. One I'd love to be in. <laughs> I, I, I want to jump back because we kind of started to touch on food trends. And I think what would be cool towards the back end of our chat is actually to discuss food trends. You, you mentioned um, cellular ag- agriculture as part of that. And that's only really in its infancy and it's people are hardly talking about it. Your specialist area is the next five to say 25 years. So what are some of those trends that you're seeing um, or, or potential next evolutions of yeah. food? Well, building off of the 
cellular agriculture thing. I mean, I think that's that's going to be a, one of those forces, right? Uh, and again, it just if you look at the the way we we produce and supply protein, that could be you know the third way to do it, right? You got plant based, you got regular animal based, and then you got this kind of thing that's something very different, you know. You're selling it to me. <laughs> I hold that thesis up that like if you're at the bottom 20% of what you're doing, your market's going to shrink enough that you can't survive because people are going to pick the best one. Like, you know, if I went from having a burger set a cow burger seven days a week in my life, and now I have a plant-based one two days of the week and a lab grown one two days of the week, how many burgers less am I buying? I'm only buying three burgers now. I was buying seven burgers before. Well, am I going to buy like, I only have three burgers a week. Am I going to buy the worst burger? No, I'm going to buy the best burger because I only have it three days a week, you know? So I think that dynamic is going to be what is going to happen. And I think in the long run for eaters though, it, it makes eaters lives more interesting and better because they're going to just have better choices. Um, so that's one. And I, and I think that's a really compelling kind of thing that, that um, is coming up. Um, beyond that, you know, <clears throat> I'm famously kind of known for saying that the future of food trends is everything <laughs> because, because, and I sort of flipped the question on its head because I don't think there's going to be such thing as a mass food trend anymore in 25 years. Uh, the population's growing globally a lot. You've got a lot of uh, different, you know, cult cultures and comp uh, places kind of becoming uh, more industrialized and wealthier. And we're also culturally different yet also really connected that I think it's going to be harder to start like a massive food trend, like Coca-Cola from scratch, because it's going to be damn near impossible to get the whole world to agree that they like one thing. I don't think you ever create Coke in today's world that's digitally powered and really big because how do you get the whole world to agree that one product is awesome in yeah. today's age? You know, um, I don't think it's possible. And I think what happens now is like it, we all are going to splinter into these smaller, medium-sized food tribes. You know, I tell this to companies all the time. I say, <clears throat> look, you used to go after launching a product that had a billion dollars of market potential. Um, now you need to launch 10 brands that have $100 million market potential, you know? Mm. So yeah, I, I, it's, it's a little frustrating because it doesn't exactly answer the question, but I do think that's what it is, is that because we're digitally connected, this is why it happens now, it couldn't happen before, right? Name any food trend you can ever think of. And you say, is this going to be a trend? I'll say, yes. Here's why. Um, beef jerky made out of sea kelp, okay? Is that going to be a trend? Yes. But the yes is, it depends on what scale you're looking at, right? If I'm sitting here and I've got a bunch of sea kelp that I turned into beef jerky in the 1950s, I'm kind of the only one that knows that. <laughs> and maybe my neighbors know that, right? Um, it would, it, it, it'll take me a long time to tell the world about that because there was no internet. The difference today is I go crazy over my sea kelp beef jerky right here. I set up a Shopify page an Instagram account, whatever. And instantly I can, if I do my job, well, I can find every beef jerky sea kelp lover in the world and ship to them. 
So now yeah. instead of me sitting alone with this little trend that you wouldn't call a trend back then because it didn't rise, I've created a trend. So I think that is the kind of thing you're going to see just hundreds and hundreds of times over is these people connecting with each other and saying like, oh, I think that's cool too. I think that's cool too. Um, and that's why it's hard to pinpoint any trends that are going to dominate so well. You know, we've seen in the political sphere how splintered everyone's political ideologies have become. I think the same thing's happening in food. You know, we can't get everyone to agree on how to run a country or the planet. Why would you ever think you could get the whole world to agree on Coke? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So do, do you think, as you're saying that, it's got me thinking, do you think things like movements, for instance, like the regenerative agriculture movement is, is more likely to become, a, a, I'd say, a mega trend in, as opposed to individual products? I think it should. I don't, I hope it does. That's what I'll say. I hope it does. I, I don't think that, I don't think that if we just say that regenerative agriculture, especially to your audience, which is probably very agriculture focused, I don't think we can sit back and say that regenerative agriculture is going to be a trend. So we can, uh, we should go after it. I think it's the, the farming community decides if it's going to be a trend or not. And the big producers that buy from those communities are going to decide if these trends are not. Um, and, and for me, I think the thing that will make it a mega trend is what I said before about make it the, make the sustainable choice, the more enjoyable choice. Yeah. I think we need to be thinking also about how do we not just regenerate the soil and our farming operations, but how do we make food from regenerative means that is markedly better in terms of nutrition and or flavor to people. It's an interesting spice. While still, while still maintaining all the purported benefits to the environment and the ecosystem, right? Because um, you think about the last movement that was kind of big before regenerative and it was organic, right? Organic was sort of the shorthand for, for oh, this is good for the planet. And here's the problem is Ask anybody, can they tell the difference in taste between organic broccoli and non-organic broccoli? It's almost no, no one can, right? Most people can't. And that's a problem because then that means that that limits your success because you're basically then only saying that, okay, well, if no one can tell the difference in quality and taste and it's got the same nutrition, who's going to buy the one that's 30% more expensive? Only rich people who want to feel good about themselves mentally, but it, it's not actually doing anything. But like, you know, how, how do you, how do you figure out how to make that organic broccoli more delicious or more nutritious than the other one? Right. Cause then everyone would buy it and they would say, Oh, I don't mind paying 30 cents extra for that. So I think that's the kind of the, the missed opportunity that organics didn't do. And I think that is the open opportunity for anyone in the regenerative game to try to do Already, I think people generally have this idea of like, oh, regenerative agriculture, thick, fertile soils, um, healthy soils. <clears throat> and that's great. But no one's kind of continued that story and says, how does great, healthy soil make a carrot or beetroot that is utterly to die for? And I'm not saying that's easy to do or that's even a thing that's correlated. That's not what I'm saying. But there, there has to be... <laughs> 
some storyline that connects the dots between why the hell should I care about how healthy your soil is? I'm not eating your soil. I'm eating the food. That's yeah. the voice of the cynical consumer. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I think that the, the onus is on the growers and on kind of the food industry at large to figure out how to make that connection to people with people. That's interesting. It's, it's got me thinking, well, there's something I want to ask you, Mike, um, particularly is what is it about this area that makes you so passionate about it and why you keep turning up every day to be involved? It's questions like that, because I think no one's really focused on that question. I think it's a really hard question and really exciting. And I think, you know, at this stage in, in my, you know, career, you know, I, I turned 42 on Friday, so I'm experienced enough to know, have had experience, but I'm still young enough that I can take on really long, big, ugly problems, you know, and still try to make a dent in them. Like I'm not at the end of my career where I, I, I'm probably more interested in helping the younger generation do stuff. You know, I've still got at least 40 years of good damage I can create in this. And so for me, that question is just the most exciting thing. I don't care what next year's crisp flavor is. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But I do care about how do we like make food? How do we make food, sustainable, regenerative food sell like a Tesla, not like a Prius? You know, that's kind of my, the mantra is, um, is, is, is that it's, I, I call it, uh, you know, hedonistic sustainability. That's not my term. An architect from Copenhagen, Blark Ingalls coined that term, but I borrow it frequently because I think that is the way in food that, that you kind of scale up these movements, whether it be regenerative or, or whatever, is adopt the mindset of a hedonist. That's cool. I like it. And Mike, I do have one question to ask everyone that comes on the podcast is you, you get the chance to go back to your high school and talk to the students in year 10 about a career in agriculture and food. What would be your advice to them about why they should consider pursuing a career in our area? It's actually the last thing I said. It's, it's, that's the advice is um, the best thing you can do for the planet is to show people how what's good for the planet is more nutrition delicious for people. You know, and, 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 and I guess the other thing I would say that's related to that is like, don't sit in your own silo of thinking, um, frequently try to see the world from people that have nothing to do with what you do. And that's, you know, everyone, everyone has a tendency to do that. You know, you're working at your job every day and, and you don't really think about people that are in a totally different place in the world, you know, and I think you it would behoove you to do that um because i think it'll make you better at what you do you know even to try to understand ideas that are super uncomfortable and awkward for you i think it'll make you better at what you do you know so i always tell kind of people who are in hardcore sustainability regenerative minded people sure <clears throat> you have your fan base that are is going to always embrace the stuff that you grow but that's not the real challenge the real challenge is to get the people that either don't know what you're doing or don't like what you're doing to embrace what you're doing. So, so I always kind of say like, okay, you eat locally, you grow everything. Great. Um, I don't know, go on food stands for a week and just eat fast food for a week and see what that's like, you know, 
and 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 then walk into a Whole Foods and see how like you only have a few dollars, but the broccoli is nine dollars. Right? Yeah, I, I think you need to see the world from that point of view because if you can understand that, you can problem solve it. You don't have to agree with it. That's not the point. Um, but it, 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 it's always better to just kind of make more connections in your mind, and and those connections come from having different data points. Um, so be an open sponge. Um, yeah, and I, and I think also to look outside of food too. I look outside of food and also learn how to take ideas from other industries and tra uh, translate them into what you're doing. You know, um, I think there's a huge parallel between Tesla as a company and regenerative agriculture. Most people might not think there's a connection there. Um, I don't think there's a literal connection there, but like the ideas of where I think they can kind of help each other out, I, I think are there. So like that, that to me is probably one, yeah, another big piece of advice I would give um, to students is to, to learn how to do that parallel thinking and take ideas from everything, not just food. Because often the best ideas for food are not in food. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's um, it's been a really interesting chat. I'm actually looking forward to going back and listening to this and going like, you know, after you've, after you've gone through and done something and then you actually listen to it and you take away something else or you're like, oh, I completely missed that part. But um, like, I've really enjoyed having you on for a chat. I find your area so fascinating. And I think the, the experience that you're able to bring to it from kind of your background, as you said, from the, the restaurant, your grandparents, grandfather's restaurant and what he learned into the finance industry. And now it's, um, and operating in a market like the US, it's it's fascinating. So thank you so much for coming on the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Of course, Ollie, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, I don't know if I hired it very well, but I was fascinated by what Mike does, how he does it, how he works with big companies and how they innovate from with inside them. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that chat because I certainly really did. We're really excited that Evoke Ag is coming back to 2023. It'll be held on the 21st to the 22nd of Feb in Adelaide, South Australia. If you're interested in attending the two-day full-scale global event or partnering, visit evokeag.com. You can find out more details. Look after yourselves, everyone. Stay safe, stay sane, and I can't wait to join you again for what is going to be a huge few weeks of Humans of Ag. We're actually hitting the road, going to do a bit of videoing, um, chatting to a bunch of different people, so we'll have a pretty good range of podcast guests coming up over the next little while. Cheers, guys. See you next week.